0: Subscribe to The Spectator in our Black Friday sale and get the next 12 weeks of the magazine,
1: in print and online, for just £12. And we'll also throw in a bottle of Johnny Walker Black Label Whiskey worth £30, absolutely free. Hurry though, this offer ends on Monday. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash friday. Hello and welcome to Chinese Whispers with me, Cindy Yu. Every episode I'll be talking to journalists, experts and long-time China watchers about the latest in Chinese politics, society and more. There'll be a smattering of history to catch you up on the background knowledge and some context as well. How do the Chinese see these issues? People very often and very easily think of 1989, the Tiananmen Square protests whenever civil disobedience in China is talked about or happens. And often those references are too easily made. Even so, this weekend's protests across the country in China have been historic. It's the first time since the Zero Covid policy started that people across cities have simultaneously marched against government, their fury catalyzed by the deaths of 10 people in a lockdown high-rise building in Xinjiang, that happened last week. Beijing, Shanghai, Wuhan, Xi'an, Urumqi, Chengdu, Nanjing, my home city, have all seen protests over the weekend, and most of them attack the zero COVID policy, but some have also said... Down with Xi Jinping. So today we're recording on Monday 8pm UK time. It seems like the protests have been snuffed out. There's heavy police presence in the protest hotspots in major cities. Passers-by are having their phones checked for foreign social media apps like Twitter and Telegram. And some of the ringleaders, although it doesn't seem like a largely organised movement, have been arrested. Nevertheless, how monumental is this development in the history of China's protests? And, and where will this go next? Does it have any legs? I'm joined by Professor Jeffrey Wasserstrom, a China historian at UC Irvine, who is an expert on protests in the mainland and Hong Kong, and Isabel Hilton, a longtime China watcher and founder of the blog China Dialogue. So Jeff, maybe we can start with you. I, I do think that these protests are historic, but what do you think about the comparisons to 1989? Are they well-founded? So I think we should
2: separate out two things about Tiananmen. One is to make the statement that these are something that we haven't seen since Tiananmen on the mainland, which I think is true. But that doesn't mean that what we're seeing is like Tiananmen. I think those are two different kinds of claims to make. And The claim that we haven't seen anything like this since Tiananmen is definitely true, that it presents a kind of challenge on the mainland that the chinese communist party hasn't had to face since then by which i mean multiple protests at the same time in very different parts of the country that seem to have the same impetus or at least the same grievance and you know in a similar way 2019 in hong kong was was the biggest event in terms of sheer numbers of people on the streets of any one city that the chinese communist party had faced since tiananmen But it was very different from Tiananmen because it was confined to one place. This, at least so far, is very different from Tiananmen because the most striking thing about Tiananmen, besides the number of places affected, was the fact that the protests went on as long as they did, their sustained nature. And I think it's worth remembering that in 1989, that was really what was most surprising to many of us. Wasn't that the protest happened, wasn't that there was repression used against them, but that they were able to last as long as they were. And that was quite specifically, at least in part, because of something that is not present here, as far as we know, which is a division in the ruling elite over how to respond. So I think it's worth keeping Tiananmen in mind, but also noting the the dramatic differences. And there was also one comment on Twitter Wang Yasheng mentioned maybe we should actually think about the 1976 Tiananmen protest, which was this massive outpouring of grief about Joe and Li's death, but also a way of expressing all kinds of pent-up frustrations. That that's a very different kind of thing, but yeah, we can we can think about more than one analogy or comparison at, at a time, and I think we have to because this isn't just like anything that's happened before.
1: Mm. as well would you agree with that and, and also just to add on what jeff was saying you know this is something that's happening in the mainland you know hong kong was obviously much larger in scale but i think a lot of people thought maybe since 1989 this sort of thing happening on the mainland might be quite unthinkable
0: yes i agree with jeff i think it's also worth maybe pointing to another similarity i mean the connection i guess between what's happening now and what's happening in tiananmen they're not the same i agree with that too but in Tiananmen, what we remember, of course, is that it was a democracy protest and we remember all the speeches and the meetings and the goddess of democracy. But actually, one of the one of the big things that triggered it was general discontent with inflation, with corruption, with the fact that, you know, the, the 80s had been, you know, lurching from kind of policy initiative to policy initiative and it hadn't really gone that well materially, at least for most people. And that had translated... Into a discontent with the with the government, with the dictatorship, with the lack of democracy, and I think you're seeing that connection made here. I do think the trigger here is a weariness with the heavy-handedness of COVID zero COVID policy. You know, Xinjiang had a hundred days of lockdown before that fire, which has been one of the uh, triggers for this one, and it has translated very quickly. Though it's picking up echoes of a protest that happened a lone protester with a banner on a bridge, Situng Bridge in Beijing, just before the 20th Party Congress. So it's clear that this discontent, which, which has real causes, frustrations, anger at the way local officials have been prosecuting the zero COVID policy, but that has slipped quite quickly over the over the barrier, if you like, between local issues and discontent with the government. And that is, again, something mm. that happened in 1989, but again, we ought to remember, you know, we've forgotten about protest in China. There was 76, yes, there was also 79. Democracy Wall went on for weeks of debate about the shape of China. How should its politics be after Mao Zedong? And, you know, I quite like the echo of the fact that Xi Jinping is the most, if you like, personalized dictator we've seen since Mao. This is a cult of personality. And it's precipitating a response in people, which is not entirely, I think, the response that he was hoping for. It's kind of bringing up all these political questions again. And we haven't seen those in particular for some time.
1: I want to get on into the underlying causes and the catalyst for this last few days in just a little bit. But first of all, Jeff, what do we know about how widespread these protests are? At the time that we're recording on Monday night, it seems like no new incidents, big incidents of the sort that we saw on the weekend have happened in the major cities because of heavy police presence in the hotspots. But even from the footage from the weekends, and I think it's important to say that none of us are there on the ground. Is it mainly young people? Has it spilled over to the wider population? What are the demographics that we know about how white, because I think there's such a tendency, and certainly in the interviews that I've given today of Western media, assuming that there's all, when we say nationwide, we don't just mean we mean a lot of people, but do we know anything about the scale?
2: I think it's too early to really have much of a sense of that. And even of the composition, although it has been notable that there are a lot of young faces in the crowd and a lot of faces of young women in the crowd. And I, I totally agree with with Isabel that we tend to forget about how things can intersect in terms of very kind of quotidian concerns mm. and anger can be part of a movement that later gets remembered largely for its kind of grand slogans and things like that. And that that helps explain why there was a resonance in so many places. I think both there was pent up frustration and there was, in the case of the fire, what's been crucial in leading to online expressions of anger throughout the last, not just the last couple of years, but going back to when there was a high speed train crash that was covered up. There have been online expressions of of anger and outrage that happen when there's a situation where you say that could have been my family that was there. That could have been my child. And this has been anger at bullying by local officials, it's been anger at, at many different things. The difference is that that has tended to be online-only expressions, whereas now it's also on the streets. But it's it's a strange kind of thing. Protests haven't gone away, but they've been kind of going in different strands. So there have been on-the-street protests about single issues in single places that have happened, including a lot of environmental protests. There have also been many place protests over something involving a foreign country, anti-Japanese protests and Mm anti-NATO protests in 1999. And those can be very different because the government tolerated them or in some cases even supported them. But they still matter because they keep alive the sort of muscles of taking to the streets in some ways. So I I don't think we should discount that. And I also think we shouldn't discount the fact that news from around the world of people taking to the streets continues to flow into China, even when there are protests about something very different, that people are aware of actions. And I, I heard that one of the things on social media in China that was was mentioned was some discussion of Iran mm. and the kind of bravery of people fed up with a government, which interestingly is a government that Sort of took shape around 1979, thinking about that moment that Isabel looked back to, and that there was admiration for the Iranian World Cup team not singing the anthem. So you can have a way in which, even if it's a totally different set of grievances or movement, that people say, look, there are people taking these very bold actions someplace else. If we're fed up, why aren't we taking bold actions? That Mm. kind of effect. And in the 1980s, another thing that happened in the lead up to Tiananmen was state television was showing images of South Korean protesters, or before that of the Philippines, of people power. So there were things that are kind of in the air that suggest that this might be a moment for action.
1: Yeah, and what I don't understand is just given how much of this seems to have happened online, and obviously caveat that with we are outside of China, so we see a lot of the online stuff as our way of getting in the information, whether people who are not so online are fully informed or really understand, you know, if they see, let's say your average 70-year-old Chinese woman if she walks down the streets and sees someone holding a blank piece of paper, does she know what the protest is about? And I don't know, I mean, it's, it's almost impossible to know it, but well. I don't know what you think about that, whether obviously protests so often comes from young people but if you're not digitally connected do you know what's happening?
0: I Honestly I think that's pretty hard to say because we're looking at these recurring fragments you know what we are seeing are these extraordinary images short video clips that that get posted we actually don't you know people tell us where they were filmed and when but we can't verify it. We don't really know. Mm. And without that, you know, we would also be in the dark. So I think your 70-year-old unconnected Chinese lady might hear gossip, but I'm not sure that, you know, she would be totally aware of what somebody holding up a blank piece of paper meant. She would be a lot more aware if she heard some of these call and response things that we've been hearing, Mm. you know, going back to the Situm Bridge protest, that banner which appeared, it had a whole series of demands, which we've been hearing again on the streets. So we don't want PCR testing. We want food. We don't want lockdowns. We want freedom. We don't want lies. We want dignity and so on. We don't want dictatorial leaders. We want elections. We don't want to be slaves. We want to be citizens. I think she'd hear that. She might be pretty alarmed if she heard it, but she'd certainly understand what was being asked for.
1: Yes, absolutely. Well, let's talk about the politics involved here then, because do we think that this is, is well, I totally agree that this is about the quotidian concerns, and that's what really what's driving this into overflow. How much politics, how much of the concerns of these protesters are against the Chinese Communist Party, are against Xi Jinping? Because we've heard some of that, but a lot of it is also to do with COVID. Well, I think they overlap,
0: because it is my
1: impression, and again, caveat, I'm not there, But it's my impression that the big
0: whites are now deeply unpopular, that there have been enough examples of people dying because of the overzealous application of zero COVID policy, that the frustration with COVID very quickly becomes a frustration with authority, however it's manifest, and that becomes a frustration with the state. And just, you know, before the Xinjiang fire, there was a bus crash, you will recall, in Guizhou, where people had been taken in the middle of the night, heading for a quarantine centre, which was, you know, miles and miles away from where they lived. And the bus crashed and 27 people died. So that, again, precipitated a kind of rage about why Mm. were they forcibly put on the bus in the middle of the night and driven off to their deaths, as it turned out, and who was going to be held responsible. And there've been so many like that. There was another one the other day of a young woman kneeling in the street with her hands tied behind her back because she tried to pick up a takeaway meal without a without a mask on. These excesses are, and particularly because you can't see the faces of mm. the big whites, they're just you know anonymous kind of enforcers, that I think that the resentment that people have towards that and to the fact that they're deeply unreasonable and they're doing deeply unreasonable and often dangerous things, means that, you know, this indeed quotidian frustration doesn't have a very long distance to travel before it becomes frustration with the system mm. or the way the system is being enacted.
1: Yeah, and the big whites being the dabai that the people in hazmat suits, the local officials who often enforce these things on yeah, the ground. exactly. Jeff. do you think that... You know, Isabel just gave some pretty awful examples of where the the zero COVID policy has got incredibly ludicrous, sometimes fatally. Is it possible to say if Chinese people are generally scared of the virus still and would be happy with some form of lockdown on pandemic control? It's not coming from kind of almost a British style lockdown scepticism, but what they are protesting against is when these policies are interpreted to such an extent or required to such an extent, for example, a negative test within 24 hours before you can even leave your flat, that kind of stuff. Is that what they're protesting against, the worst parts of it?
2: Well, first of all, there probably are many people, again, we are not on the ground and If there are protests in many places, there are millions of people who aren't out on the streets, obviously. There are people who've been gotten enough information about how badly COVID has been handled in other parts of the world that there was a fair amount of—actually, Isabella's written about this in The Guardian recently—there was a lot of goodwill toward the policy early on. So it's really—it's not about— being against lockdowns. It's being against these measures being taken to a level of of absurdity. And I think there is a memory of other policies that, whether people are thinking about this parallel directly, there's there's awareness of living through periods of just bizarre attachment to policies after they had been shown to not be working the way they were supposed to be. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can go back to the Great Leap Famine, obviously, but you can just go back to the one-child policy. And that there was a moment when you could have a a serious debate about the demographic pros and cons of a serious control of births. But there were years after which it was clear that there was no longer a clear rationale for that. And the Communist Party was still attached to it. It took a long time for it to walk back. And there's one other thing that I think it's there's a rarity. The shout outs that specifically talked about Xi Jinping or the Communist Party do seem to be a real, a real rarity within these, these protests. But I don't think we can draw a clear line between you know, daily life and political concerns. And, and the ways they can intersect are in a few ways. One is with a sense of unfairness, a sense that there are people that aren't constrained in the same way. And something that I think was probably a terrible reading of the room in terms of a visual was the fact that we just saw Xi Jinping and Li Yuan in Bali, maskless, consorting with Mm. other leaders, and then going to Thailand.
1: Wearing lovely tropical shirts. (laughs) Right,
2: and then going on to Thailand. And then you have this kind of, if there was somebody who was thinking about, you know, parallels between Xi Jinping as an emperor-like figure who just lives by different kinds of rules, Mm. then that kind of image, which which was different. You know, he's back... It's not just that soccer fans are now back to, football fans, excuse me, I'll correct my uh, my Americanism, are back to watching the World Cup, but it's also Xi Jinping is back to globe trotting, and yet there's a sense of still being trapped into this, this loop. And that would be circling back to Tiananmen. Another thing about the frustrations in the 1980s, late 1980s, was also a feeling that the Communist Party hadn't left behind... Certain things that it was supposed to have left behind as it was alternating and modernizing. Mm. So there was frustration in 1989 that it still seemed to be an old man who was in power for life in the favor of Deng Xiaoping, who seemed to be calling all the shots, even though there was supposed to be a move away from personality rule, and there had been. But still, when he dismissed Hu Yaobang, you know, sort of changing his mind about successors, at least for some of the Tiananmen generation, it's like, that was cultural revolution style stuff. Why are we still doing that? And now I think, again, there's this idea that there was supposed to be a reset. China was supposed to be fully part of international trends and perhaps even leading them. And it seemed that maybe early in the COVID moment that that was possible. And now it seems that China is out of touch with it and is more isolated and is, you don't even have places like Australia or New Zealand you can point to or Taiwan to say that there too, they've got these stringent quarantines. So it's really all of these things, I think, bundle together.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it was interesting that the Japanese fans have been at the Qatar World Cup and some people were quite annoyed about that because I think... There was some kind of latent understanding that Asians perhaps are a bit more hypochondriac, a bit more careful with this kind of stuff. But hold on, <laughs> the Japanese are there. And well, how much do you think there's a gap between expectations and reality as well in the more short term? So earlier this month, the government talked about these 20 optimization measures that they wanted to make to zero COVID, which some people... I would say, myself included, (laughs) interpreted as a step in the right direction that the end is now in sight for zero COVID-included policies like reducing the quarantine time from 10 to 8 days, making sure that contacts of contacts, so secondary contacts are no longer quarantined and test traced. But then came, you know, all of these, you know, Foxconn protests, Xinjiang fire, Qatar World Cup. Nomura, the analysis agency, estimates that 400 million people are under lockdown at the moment. So is that part of it as well? Because people thought, actually, this is starting to end. Yes, I think people did think
0: that. And and certainly, this dragnet was extraordinarily wide. And, and as we've been discussing, I mean, one of the problems with policies like this is that they they lose their connection with reality because they become part of state authority and challenging them. You're challenging the state. And that's, you know, again, one of the many things that people resent. But I think there was a glimmer of hope. But then what happened was that the numbers started to go up. And the whole, you know, basis of the claim that China has handled COVID better than anybody else rests on the fact that the numbers remained low and the death rate remained low. And, you know, I'm sure this has been widely discussed, but the relative inefficacy of Chinese vaccines, Mm. the fact they don't have an mRNA and the fact that the vaccine rate, particularly among the elderly, is insufficient, you know, mean that were it to take hold, there is a risk, as we saw in Hong Kong, that you would suddenly get very, very large numbers of deaths. And that would be very much at the door of the government. So, I mean, they are in this blind alley when they they're going to have to get out rather slowly by vaccinating properly by you know lifting carefully but how they handle the gap in expectations in the short term is going to be quite tricky i think because people
1: have already been disappointed are they going to have to give some kind of ground because of what's happened over the last few days do we think
0: going to have to come up with some kind of new story, yes. Giving ground, I don't know. I mean, you could argue that giving ground in the face of public pressure is not a good look for the party either. But I think that, you know, a party that has expressed itself as the guardian of the people's security and, you know, Xi Jinping full of concern for the people, well, you know, the people are hurting. So, there needs to be something that convinces them that either, you know, there is an end in sight to this or the policy will be more rationally applied or that indeed, you know, there is a way of keeping people safe through vaccination and that is going to be sped up. But absent that, we're just repeating the same same tropes. Mm. Jeff, what do you think?
2: Those are all really good points, but listening to it, I was just thinking about, because I do believe that it's all about Authoritarian regimes have to tell stories that have some kind of purchase. Mm. And the story that has had some kind of purchase is about low COVID death rates. But that's why a fire and a bus crash that mean people are dying because of COVID related measures is directly undermining part of that key story.
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Can we also talk about the language of the protests? It is why you've already mentioned the Sit-on-Bridge banner, and I, I think it's incredible how a month on so much of that one man's words are coming back. I find it quite interesting in the various ways in which social media has been co opted to get around censors. So for example the blog that got censored which was all black boxes, leading to this ludicrous situation of the censors kind of censoring an empty blog. Obviously that's the point of the white sheet as well. And people sarcastically on social media saying, Yes, 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 ha 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 you know, that kind of stuff which is just I think just such so, so brilliant ways of getting around the censors. Jeff, on social media, how much is that? does that change the nature of protest in China over the many protests that you've studied? And I guess comparisons maybe can be drawn with Hong Kong as well.
2: So social media, I mean, it, it changes everything, but then you see familiar patterns coming up. I mean, including things of getting around whatever. Uh, there are always going to be cat and mouse games of different sorts, of using different... Different media it certainly changes things because there are more ways to surveil and there are more ways to control, but then there are always ways to get to get around it in nineteen eighty nine one of the curious ones was when there was a blocking out of news coming into the country. people were using fax machines. You could fax articles from the outside in that would get around the mail being censored and so you you have all of these kinds of patterns that show up getting around censorship it's one of the most fascinating things about following events mm. in china is because of the incredible resourcefulness and creativity whether it's using images during the me too movement it was so extraordinary they would do rice bunny which are the words for rice is me and bunny is too. so if you wanted to talk about me too but you couldn't talk about me too you could talk about rice bunnies there are a variety of things though but it doesn't always have to be that subtle or roundabout singing the national anthem Or the Internationale, which are sort of songs that the state doesn't want to ban singing and that maybe Mm. allow that imagined, uh, let's imagine it now... uh, the 70-year-old man instead of the 70-year-old woman who's not online coming into the streets and hearing people singing the national anthem isn't going to, isn't going to get them to, to think this is dangerous, stay away, but perhaps make them think, oh, what's going on? But then if you listen closely to the words, they're about rising up. So there are ways in which space is laid open for certain kinds of expressions by things that are positively viewed even by the state. Les Miserables was allowed into... Was It was celebrated when Les Miserables was playing in China. Initially, it was an early kind of touring production, but now you can use Do You Hear the People Sing? a protest anthem. Mm. So it's very interesting. I think you get a lot of the same dynamics of back and forth, getting around censors. This can go back. I mean, using veiled ways to make fun of sacred figures is something that goes back, uh, was true in the French Revolution with scandalous pamphlets that were attacking <laughs> Marie Antoinette and the King, you know, there, there are ways in which what's being done is with different media. What social yeah. media does change is the instantaneousness of things spreading incredibly widely. And I think that does matter. I think that increases the flow across borders or between different parts of the world much faster that you can know about what people are doing in totally different places. It probably does amplify what's happening outside of, of China. In the You mentioned there's been a drawing down of protests. There seems to be as of Monday evening, mm. but there's actually not a drawing down of the echo sympathy protests outside of China that will then have images that circulate back into China and that also allow diasporas to... Remain connected to what's going on back in the place of origin, but also international students are involved in this as well. So, you do have events planned on American college campuses, and I know there have been ones in the UK and I'm sure in Canada. This is so, and that initially happened with the Bridgeman. The banners disappeared from Beijing, but the slogans stayed alive in part by being posted yeah. up online, but also posted up. On places outside of China.
1: And also, after that, people saying, Well, Kandala, I saw it in reference to that. So, you're not, nothing in your comments says anything rebellious, but you're referring to the fact that you saw it before it got taken down. As another way of getting around censors, as well, I've also been struck by the incredible humour that has come out of some of this, these protest things. One thing that I sent Jeff on Twitter earlier today was someone Chinese, I assume, on Twitter suggesting that that the protesters just split into two teams. One says we want PCR tests, we don't want freedom. The other team says we want freedom, we don't <laughs> want PCR tests. And then every 10 minutes, they change the slogans and change characters, <laughs> and to keep the police on their toes. <laughs>
0: Well, yeah. actually again you know there is a long and rich tradition of humor in chinese protest and particularly the use of jeff referred to this kind of visual punning i don't know if either mm. of you remember the grass mud horse which it may be too near to the bone for a family podcast but, that's all right
1: uh, <laughs> i mean it means fuck your mother or <laughs> it sounds like the that words one. up yes exactly <laughs> yeah
0: yeah uh, talima, but the image for the talima was a llama, which is a kind of intrinsically silly-looking animal. So when, for example, CCTV managed to set fire to its own building and not report it on the evening news when the building in central Beijing was ablaze, though all these images appeared with the building burning and, and a grass mud horse looking quizzically at it, and kind of, it was just kind of intrinsically funny, and that's been a hugely successful. Policy. I still have a whole collection of very witty images from past protests, and of course, you know the image of Winnie the Pooh, there. Mm. One mentioned, you know, has again, you know, raised a smile while showing disrespect in exactly the same way that Jeff was talking about the French Revolution. You know, this mockery of of leaders, of slogans, of pretensions, has been very effective, and and it is a rich tradition.
1: Mm. Well, Jeff, let's look at what happens next, then, because as we both said, you know, tonight it looks like nothing has happened but that doesn't mean something couldn't bubble over again or i think if they don't give ground the next time something small happens you know it doesn't even have to be a file or anything like that but any trigger i think could reignite the kind of anguish that's what we're seeing at the moment but over the next week or so what do you think beijing will be trying to do and you know you guys mentioned hinted that they're probably not too worried at the moment so what do we think will happen next basically I mean, I
2: I think they're worried because they don't like things that they can't control. And also the fact that this could sort of reemerge. They have a variety of techniques they can use from flooding the internet with things they'd rather have people talking about than this, trying to make people forget, arresting people. Mm. It it has been interesting that it seems to be a fairly leaderless movement. So there aren't obvious targets to go after. Some of the things that they traditionally do have already been done, I mean you go after civil society organizations and anything that looks like it could mobilize, but yet this has been mobilized with very little very little of that. Another thing in their kind of traditional arsenal would be to make an example of some local officials who who had misapplied the policy and there was I think uh, an apology in Rumchi mm. by the mayor so there, that might be an example of at least some kind of symbolic giving grounds. There have been some loosening of of lockdowns in a couple of places. But the most obvious person for, I mean, one of the things is thinking about why Shanghai, the protests were pretty intense there, even if small scale. Shanghai was widely seen by local people as as a kind of botched lockdown, where it it was exaggerated. But the person responsible for it, far from being punished, was elevated to the standing committee. So I can see that as being something that people would be... This is an example of a news story that can come back to bite an authority. I mean, they they probably thought Shanghai people should be happy that one of their own was up in power. Mm. The other thing I'd be nervous about, I guess, is just something if you were in the leadership is... Another thing that allows possibility, I think you're right, is another opportunity for mourning if there is some...
1: Well, it's coming up to the first case in Wuhan, you know, in, in a month or so now, isn't it? That that anniversary, three-year anniversary.
2: And you also have very elderly leaders who could die and at some point will die.
1: Jiang Zemin, do you think? Or Hu Jintao, who looked very senile
2: recently. These would be things that you, you would not want to have happen if you were aware of your history. And the Chinese Communist Party is very aware of its history, which can lead to being haunted by it, but can also lead to efforts to counteract things. So I'm sure there is discussion. It's a very diagnostic regime of trying to figure out what do we have to guard against. Mm. They've been talking about that. But the other thing you're going to see is trying to paint the protests, which is already happening, trying to paint them as color revolutions, talk about foreign influence. Those are things that you just know are going to happen. What the government is probably frustrated by is that they didn't have a good video they could show to challenge the videos of peaceful protests and of DABAI violence. There hasn't been any ugly incident that they can amplify. Once there is, as we saw with the Mm. Hong Kong protests, then that gets shown over and over again in an effort to try to convince the people that that's the typical protest as opposed to an atypical one yeah so that's i think the things to watch for
1: but so are we generally skeptical that zero covid is going to have any change of policy as a result of this Isabel? Well? i mean also like the second follow-up question to that is why don't they just <laughs> import some foreign vaccines and make this all go away well <laughs>
0: Very good question. I think one difficulty has been, again, kind of hoist by their own petard in that the propaganda that Chinese medicine and Chinese vaccines are effective and foreign vaccines are to be suspected because, you know, foreigners are pretty wicked and who knows what's in them so i think that they have created a big
1: microchips well
0: yes well for example so i think that there is resistance even in hong kong actually elderly people were resisting vaccination there was a feeling the vaccines had come too fast couldn't be trusted and i think in china you're, you're seeing something similar so they've got a job to do to get those elderly people vaccinated but i agree with jeff that the the strategy of you know Clamping down, there's sort of nothing to see here. They were, you know, just a few protesters, probably ill-intentioned, probably stimulated by evil foreigners. That certainly is beginning. You can see that already. And, you know, blaming local officials, that's another standard trope. But I don't think that they have the room at present Mm. to do anything terribly substantial on Covid for all the reasons we've discussed and that's going to take a few months so they're going to have to find something that demonstrates concern but firmness in the meantime I'm not sure that the death of Jiang Zemin or Hu Jintao would demonstrate the same upwelling of emotion that Hu Yabang mm. did it was another political moment and another you know image but you know it could be the death of an ordinary person in the wrong circumstances, like Li Wenyang, the yeah. doctor who died, or or the woman who, who died because she couldn't get to hospital to have her baby. Any number of incidents that are happening really fairly regularly where COVID measures are preventing people from getting the treatment they need at uh, the time that they need it,
1: any of those could, I think become a symbol for another round of protest. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because I feel like the threshold for people's tolerance is going down over time. So it's about that that Guizhou bus crash you mentioned. 27 people died. We didn't see the kind of scale of protest we saw this weekend. You know, Xinjiang on on an objective level, there are fewer people dying, if you believe the official death toll. And also arguably, you know, there's an interesting point that these were most likely Uyghur people, not Han people. But the fact that this kind of triggered a much more exceptional response than the greater bus crash suggests to me that perhaps you know it's going to take less and less and less to trigger people because you know they're just out of their wits end there were some distressing images from the
0: burning building too i think that that obviously you know yeah of hurt. course although there were distressing images of, of big white spraying the wreckage of the greater bus crash with disinfectant which you know but Maybe not so dramatic.
1: Though. God forbid they get infected at that point.
2: <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Well.
1: Right. That was great. Any final words before I wrap up?
2: So I think the fact that it was an event in in Xinjiang that it involved Uyghurs is something we just need to know much more about and I think is a really interesting thing to, to watch. And I also think that we're talking about narratives that are, are undermined, that the central leadership has worked very hard to try to neutralize the, the international discourse about these forced indoctrination camps, extra legal, massive mm. detention network. Mm. But it's one of the things it's relied on in that to try to tamp down and spin the stories about Uyghurs is to, to present the people who are suffering or taking to the camps as somehow scary people. And you know they put a lot of energy into that when you have children who are trapped inside a building with the exits locked, that just completely falls apart and it is a powerful humanizing humanizing story that one would hope undoes a lot of a lot of this kind of damaging rhetoric i 'm mm. reminded i'm i 'm working right now on a different project about connecting protests ag- across what 's called sometimes the Milk Tea Alliance, which brings in Thailand and Burma. And the story of the coup and the horrific military crackdown in Burma that is going on as there is continued pushing back against this. I was talking to a a longtime human rights activist from Burma, and she said, if you were looking for a bright spot, one of the only bright spots was that things were done so badly and so brutally by the junta recently that it was minimizing the distrust between ethnicities within Burma, because mm. it became so clear that you had something to all feel disgusted by. And so I think that would be, you know, if we're, if we're, if we're trying to look for something, that might be one, one element to think about, that this idea of everybody being, when it comes to certain kinds of lockdowns in the same boat, even if they're even worse uh, lockdowns in places yeah. like Xinjiang and Tibet. I think that's just a, a very interesting side to the story as well.
1: Yeah, I was talking to a Hong Kong Chinese before we started recording this podcast, and they were saying that basically, they'd seen some discourse online of mainland Chinese saying to the Hong Kong Chinese apologizing, saying, we are now understand what you were going through in the last few years. So you know, if there's a sentiment that can continue, it's very interesting to watch. Isabel and Jeff, I could keep you here for so much longer. <laughs> and talk about so much more, but that will have to wait until next time. Thank you so much for joining Chinese Whispers. Thanks so much. It's been a great pleasure.